Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast. This is the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart, and I'm here with... Aaron Batchley. And pal, how you doing? I'm doing great. I, I, I have to share this with the listeners. Is that last night, Tony and I were on the computer at the same time. This is about 8 o'clock at night. And Tony was working on the, the notes for today's show. And I was working on the notes for today's show. So we were actually on the same document. And he's in Perth. I'm in Toronto. It was. I thought it was very... And I was laughing because we were sending messages back and forth. So it was very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, welcome to the 21st century, eh? But... So we are going to start things off, but you know, I can't believe that we are on episode 79 here. We just keep plugging along. This little Wayback Music Machine has been great. Oh, it's been fantastic. I didn't ask you how you are. How are you doing, man? I am doing great. You know, we had the cat fixed yesterday, so that's been an adventure trying to keep her, you know, not to be a kitten, (laughs) but you can only do your best, right? And uh, she is a kitten in every sense of the word. I love that cat, by the way. She's adorable. Just adorable. Well, anyway, she is still tormenting the dog, you know, and uh, obviously getting fixed has not taken away any of that. So, <laughs> so we're going to kick things off with a Christmas story in a moment, and we'll be right back. Hold on to your hats, folks, because believe it or not, this is episode 79. So to kick things off this week, we're going to go to December 13th, 1955 in London, England, and we're going to do a a Christmas story because we're only a few weeks away now. So this is an interesting one, actually, Aaron, when I was researching the show, I was a little surprised by this, but why don't you tell our listeners what's going on here? Well, in 1955, Dickie Valentine, and I want to be clear, that's not his real name. His real name was Richard Bryce. Um, why he would go with Dickie Valentine is beyond me, but that's that's another story for another show, Tony. It is, um, yep. <laughs> he had the first ever number one Christmas single on the UK singles chart with a song called Christmas Alphabet, which I'm going to put money on. Not many people remember or have heard because it's not a song that gets played these days. No, it isn't at all. I mean, I, I'm aware of the song, but I couldn't tell you the last time that I've heard it on radio, you know? Now, I bet you're surprised because this was the first number one Christmas song, you know, before um, White Christmas and all those other songs, right? I'm shocked. Yeah, I I couldn't believe it. But keep in mind, Tony, that the British charts didn't start charting singles until 1954. Oh, okay. There you go. So that makes more sense. Right. So... The charts are fairly new, and and the forties were completely missed. I mean, they, they were they were charted differently, but there wasn't like a singles chart. So here we go in 1955, and Dickie Valentine is at number one with Christmas Alphabet, which, by the way, is not literally the same alphabet as A B C D. Just so you know, no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Tony, guess who produced the record? Well, I know, but I'm going to let you do the big reveal because this is your notes. But this is astounding who who produced this. So I'm going to give you, I don't know if the microphone is picking this up, but I'm tapping my fingers on the desk here. Little drum roll. Who produced the record? A guy named Dick Rowe. Now, Dick Rowe. The Dick Rowe. The Dick Rowe. We've talked about this gentleman because he worked for Decca Records and he was the one that said that guitar bands were on the way out and didn't sign the Beatles. 
which is <laughs> what a great coincidence, isn't it? A little Memphis to Merseyside connection there. Because <laughs> we talked about him on our Memphis to Merseyside because we were talking about a woman named Helen Shapiro who turned down from me to you because she didn't feel it was commercial enough. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a hit. No, I don't think these guys are going to sell. Anyways, um, we're being, yeah. but yeah, Dick Rowe produced the single and it made, you know, so it made number one. Uh, of course, Dickie Valentine wasn't the original artist for the song. The original group who put it out was an American uh, group called the Maguire Sisters in 1954. What can I say? The other interesting thing, Tony, the other Beatle connection is that Dickie Valentine was on Ed Sullivan in 1954, 10 years yeah. prior to the Beatles, which is kind of, there's a lot of Beatle connections here, right? Yeah, there absolutely are. Now, when did the States start tracking singles? So what would have been the first Christmas song to go number one in the States, do you know? Well, they started tracking singles in the in the early '40s, and the okay. very first one to go number one was, of course, "White Christmas." Yeah, that was that was my guess. Okay, and probably yeah, well, at number one for many times over the years again, right? <laughs> okay, so Tony and Tony and I were talking about our other show on the radio called uh, "From Memphis to Merseyside," and we we're talking about we should play all the number one Christmas songs from 1954 to 1980. I said, well, that'd be White Christmas 26 times. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if we did that? <laughs> be, remember we had that story on this podcast, remember the uh, the guy in LA who played the song yeah. over and over and over again and the second basically a SWAT team? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think he, he barricaded himself in too, didn't he? <laughs> No one barricaded themselves and played Christmas Alphabet. <laughs> but it will be on the playlist, folks, if you want to tune into our Spotify playlist, because uh, you'll, you'll love the song. It's it's a bit dreary, but it's all right, you know? Yeah. Now, you were taking a look here in 1955. This is the era when the charts reflected a whole bunch of different music and this chart is no exception, right? So this is the top five U.S. singles from Billboard on December 13th, 1955. And boy, what a mix we've got here. Well, they weren't as taken with Dickie as um, England and Australia, because Dickie Valentine was number three in Australia. But in America, you had a number five, De Castro Sisters with Teach Me Tonight. Number four, I love, I just, I don't, we, we never talk about this woman, but I love Rosemary Clooney. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you know who her nephew was, right? George. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Very famous gentleman. Uh, a song called This Old House, which is a great version of that song. Number three, Joan Weber with Let Me Go, Lover. Not touching that. Number two, Eddie Fisher, I Need You Now. And number one. The Cordettes with Mr. Sandman, which, by the way, Tony, 10 years later, the lyrics would change and be a major hit single for a group called The Letterman with Mr. Santa. Oh, there you go. I wonder if we can find a way to put both. You know, you should put Mr. Santa on the Spotify playlist as well as the Cordettes I'm version. Make, I'm making a note right now. Okay, I'll, I will. I well, will indeed. I yes. love the Cordettes version of Mr. Sandman, actually. I, I'm just totally picturing it right now you know what a great song maybe we should include that you know for our, our post podcast radio show of this show we should put the song on because that's a great song yeah it is now we are going to take a quick break and then we're jumping ahead way ahead with this is 
an odd story. And I think I'm going to use the weird files <laughs> uh, music for this one because we've got a, a story about Dusty Hill from ZZ Top and you are not going to believe what he did on December 16th, 1984. So we will be right back. So ZZ Top, a guy named Dusty Hill, who was uh, the basis for ZZ Top, in 1984, well, you know, this is something you don't hear often. He accidentally shot himself when his Derringer fell from the boot of his car and discharged. I, I, I guess, Tony, it had to be fully loaded and, and ready to go off, right? Yeah, it had to. And so he shot himself right in the stomach, right in the abdomen. Yeah, and the it, abdomen, yeah. It's what he did next, though, which is astounding, is he just <laughs> drove himself to the local hospital for treatment. And isn't that bizarre? Well, you know, you know, Tony, it is bizarre, but I, I, I want to just share with you. I, I used to work with a, a gentleman years and years and years ago. His name was Gerard. And I was at work and I got a phone call. And he called me, he goes, hey, Aaron, it's Gerard. I'm going to be late. I said, oh, okay, what's wrong? He goes, oh, I'm just in the hospital going to, I'm just having a heart attack and I'm in the ambulance. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, it's not funny, but it is funny. Just these circumstances, yeah. Well, just the fact he's calling me from the end. <laughs> thanks thanks like, for dude. being considerate, you know. <laughs> but but this, he, uh, he apparently, he didn't realize he was really seriously hurt until he got to the hospital. Oh. And it, and it, then he goes into shock at the hospital, which is a good thing he didn't go into shock while he was driving his own car, right? Yeah. But what a story, you know, just, I mean, obviously the dangers of carrying a, around a loaded pistol and up here in Canada, you know, our American viewers, I'm sure maybe that's more common, but up here in Canada, we're, we're not so big on the firearms. So we find that story very, very odd. Well, it's very odd on many levels. <laughs> it just, you know, I, I, I guess if he was out hunting, and I, I want to be clear, I'm not a hunter, I don't support it, I whatever. However, I know people do hunt for sport. If you're out hunting or you're out target shooting or you're doing something, I understand how accidents can happen. But the fact that it just falls from his car and discharges, it seems odd to me, you know? Yeah, it it, it is very odd. And you wonder... You know, I, if you could be there to see what happened, it's just such a strange story. Now, well, you know, he is from Texas and I like what he says. It says that he, he believed in God, but he didn't know who or what God actually is. And he, he refused to ever say if he was a Republican or Democrat. And all he would say is, I, I just told him I'm a Texan. Left to my own devices. I'd never leave Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas. Uh, maybe... You know, they can just shoot themselves and drive. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Cynthia went down to Texas years ago for work. And uh, yeah, she said it, it is that that saying that everything is bigger in Texas is absolutely true. You know, you go to go out to a restaurant or something. It is unbelievable the amount of food you're getting. And, and she said it would be scorching hot down there and everybody'd be out walking around in jeans and long shirts and cowboy hats. <laughs> And you'd walk into a building and the air conditioning would be cranked and you'd practically need a winter jacket. She said it was unbelievable. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because it sounds like the polar opposite to my experience in LA where I go into a restaurant and order a plate of ravioli and get one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and get charged, you know, $47. <laughs> if you're lucky. 
I I would love to go to Texas one day. I just like she was there and she experienced that. I would love to experience the that you know the whole Texas thing, right? Yeah. I, when we're off air, I'll share some more stories from there that she told me. But it was wild. <laughs> oh, I bet it was. I bet it was. But you know, the ZZ Top are an interesting band because they were one of the few bands. Them and Rush. Yeah. There was no member changes for that band from '69 until. Dusty Hill passed away in 2021. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Not a, really, isn't it incredible? Yeah, what's that? Uh, 16, so that would be 52 years. Yeah. See that? That mental math, Aaron? See that? Yeah, but you're a teacher. And to be fair, <laughs> I'm a social worker, and I still can't. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'll, I'll be talking to someone going, well, that was about, what, 25 years ago? No, Aaron, was 52. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, ZZ Top stayed together a long time, and actually... I sent you that clip uh, because we talked, was it this show or the, I think where we talked about 16 tons by Tennessee, Ernie Ford. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you remember I sent you that cover version uh, that Billy yes. Gibbons did of that song, yeah. which was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you say what you will about ZZ Top and, and, and uh, I, I've always respected the band and, and I thought that these were, these guys have, 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 consistently put out their own style of music. They've never jumped trends. No, exactly. Maybe they, Maybe they kind of used videos to their best advantage, but they never, I mean, can you imagine ZZ Top doing like an electro beat song or something or a dance track? Never. No, exactly. They stay true to themselves their whole career. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they're still together, by the way, even though Mr. Hill passed away, uh, Elwood Francis, the longtime guitar tech, he's, he joined the band on bass. So they're still actually, I mean, I think they just played Toronto this summer. So they're still together. I love that though, that the fact that, you know, somebody who was there, technician just stepped into the band and, and makes a lot of sense, right? They, they would know this band intimately know, um, you know, how Dusty pl- played intimately because they've been with him for so long. So that's a great story. Yeah, it is. And, and, and rest, you know, rest his soul. He was a, he was a character that the, all three, but you know, Tony, uh, I'll go ahead and see if you can find any really negative press about these guys. They, they seem to have always, well, they kept to themselves, but you don't read anything negative about the members of ZZ Top. I've never read anything anyways. No, I haven't either. Now, let's take a look at your chart for this period, December 16th, 1984. You know, this is another chart with a Christmas connection here, but this is the UK Top 5. So what was going on in the UK that week? Well, a lot. Um, number 5 was Madonna, Like a Virgin. Number four was a song by Paul McCartney that was actually not released in North America, but it's a great song called We All Stand Together. It's credited to Paul McCartney and the Frog Chorus, by the way, um, because it's from the film uh, Rupert the Bear. Number three, which had been previously number one, is a song called Frankie, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Power of Love. And the video, by the way, has zero to do with the song, but the video is all in the nativity scene, which is very odd. Yeah. Number two, I want to, you know, I, I really want you to hear this song, Tony. I, you know what? I've avoided it. I've avoided this one and the Mariah Carey one so far this Christmas. I, and I, I'm going to tell you, if you put this on the playlist, I'm just going to skip over it. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm trying to see if I can go till the 25th without hearing either one. Fingers crossed. It's, it's on the playlist. I have to, cause it's, if we're talking about it, but it's, it's wham, of course, folks, last Christmas and number one as Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas? And, and of course, that song uh, just was historic. I mean, in terms of, you know, they, wrote, they recorded the song in one day, but the fact they brought together so many 
you know, British musicians, um, Style Council, Heaven mm-hmm. 17, Paul Young, Culture Club, Ultravox. Bob Geldof wrote the song with Midjur, and it stands to this day. I love that song so I, I think it stands even better than the uh, American versions, you know, that came out of those types of songs. I, I do too. I think it's really stood the test of time. Well, I think because the American one, they were attempting to do something that had been done already. Band-Aid... If you ever watch the documentary, it's literally Geldof picking up the phone, calling people, saying, hey, come to the studio tomorrow, November 24th, 1985. And it's just come to the studio tomorrow. And we're doing this, 84, sorry. Come mm-hmm. to the studio. We're going to do this song. And I don't think anything was really planned out. And the other thing that people forget is if you listen to the 12-inch single, the, the remix, which maybe I hope I can put on the playlist, Phil Collins' is drumming is outstanding. It's really good. So it's better than the drumming that George Harrison sent him over. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just slightly, slightly better. Yeah. (laughs) Now, before we cut to break, can I just uh, address this wham last Christmas? I like George Michael. I'm I'm a big George Michael fan, but man, last Christmas was a misfire. I'm sorry. I just got to say it. I have to ask you a question though. Is it a misfire because you've heard it so many times? The first time you heard it, did you like it? I never liked the song, ever. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm being bluntly honest here. I just I, never, never liked it. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, Tony, I got a confession which may affect our friendship. Okay. The song came out in England a year before it came out here and I was working in radio in the eighties and I actually had an import copy. Oh, did and you? I started, I started playing the record as an import and Columbia records sent a letter to the radio station saying, you know, because of the response we're getting from this record, we're going to release it in North America. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no doubt. It's got all the elements of a catchy <laughs> I'm sorry, pop song. I'm sorry. That's okay. No need to apologize. It's got all, all the elements of a catchy pop song, right? And maybe it, I, I didn't like it, but I think the fact that you hear it 25 times a day. as Doesn't help. Doesn't help. No, for sure. Can I just ask you? Yeah. This or the other one by Mariah? Oh, I, I, definitely. I'd, I'd take this over the other one in, in a heartbeat. <laughs> You know, if I was if I was being tortured there, and they they you know said we will make you talk, I like I choose Wham for sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump ahead to December seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. This is a song that I absolutely love, so I, I can't wait to talk about this. We'll be right back. Here we are on December 17th, 1994, talking about late December, 1963. Oh yes, folks, we're talking about one of my absolute favorite, favorite songs by the Four Seasons called December, 1963. The subtitle for that, of course, is Oh, What a Night. Do you like that song, Aaron? I do. And it's, it's, it's an unusual song for the Four Seasons, by the way, for many, we'll we'll talk about why it's unusual in a few minutes, but yeah, it's. I was really happy when it became a hit, just because it was so different than what was being played on the radio at the time. Well, that's right. The story here, now people are asking, why are we going to 1994 when this came out way back in 1976? So it charted back in 1976, because it was a great song, but it's what happened in 1994 that set chart history. So what happened in 94, Aaron? 
Well, what's even weirder is that in 1994, uh, in 1988, so I know That's we're drawing right. years around here, but yep. in 1988, a Dutch DJ, um, Ben Liebrand, Ben Liebrand, remixed the song and re-released it as a single. It didn't do anything, but all of a sudden, in '94, it becomes a hit again. And and there's a few weird things about it coincidences about it stay on the charts and you know me i'm a chart guy right? yeah well that's why i thought we'd pick this story uh, so it was stayed on the chart for another 27 weeks in 1994 isn't that unbelievable but what's unbelievable is it was on the charts for 27 weeks in 76 yeah that's so amazing isn't it i love symmetry like that <laughs> yeah me too me too and so you add the two together tony 27 to 27 is something over 50 right yeah 54 <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> failed math so <laughs> so <laughs> now let's talk about the song though Let, let's talk about the original uh the remix you know i i'm not a huge fan of the remix but like it was obviously intended for dance clubs and stuff right because they there's a huge extended drum section at the beginning of the remix but i love love the original and and it's unusual because of who's singing is the first reason Normally, it would have been Frankie Valli on vocals, but it was Jerry Polchi, the drummer, who's singing on the original. And man, is he ever a great singer, isn't he? Yeah, you hear this and you think to yourself, not, and this is nothing against Frankie Valli, you wonder why he didn't sing more. Yeah. I mean, he, he does have a great voice. Like it, an it, unbelievable voice. And Frankie Valli is providing backup for this. So Jerry Polchi. Now- Drumming and singing, there's a reason why you don't see a lot of people doing both. It is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. And Polchi, like he's rock solid. Well, he is. And and if, if you listen to the song and his voice and everything just comes together perfectly. And the, the original lyrics of the song, Tony, by the way, didn't talk about 63. It talked about 1933. Oh. So it, it, they... they smartly uh they updated it to 63 for many reasons because i think that the original lyrics were going to talk about the depression and the 30s which is kind of pardon the pun depressing yeah so they brought it to 63 and the keyboard player wrote the song with his um with his future wife so it really was a group effort Completely a group effort. Oh, it's a fantastic song. Just like right when it starts. It's one of those songs, you know, there are some songs you just turn up the radio when it comes on and this is one of them, right? Tony, have you seen Jersey Boys, the play? I know you're not a big fan of musical, nor am I, but have you seen the play? I never have, no. You would like this musical because the music makes sense. The only time they sing is when they're either in a studio or on okay. television or doing a concert. So they, they don't tell the story with the songs, the songs, you know, kind of accentuate the story. It's a really good play because it gives you insight into the the four seasons because they have a very, very interesting history. Well, yeah, in that case, I think I could, you know, tolerate that for sure because it's just in musical theater when someone just starts singing for no reason. It's like, <laughs> I'm done. I'm tapping out. I'm about to see ya. <laughs> yeah. I just, there's a new Christmas movie out right now, which apparently with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell, that is just half comedy and half musical. And apparently the criticism is that all of a sudden they just start singing. And that, well, no, that's typical musical. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's just the style of the singing too, that over the top Broadway 
Ugh, I, I just oh, I know. makes me. I, I'll, I'm not going to complain anymore. But you know how I feel about that. I well, I I just think the next question is. I guess you didn't see the musical Last Christmas then. Just just kidding. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, this was the last Four Seasons record to make it to number one, or even the top ten for that matter. Although Gene Gino, well Gino Vanelli, yeah, he would have hits too. But Frankie Valli, he would have. Uh, solo hits, especially from the album Grease, right? Mm-hmm. So this was kind of their last hurrah, which if you think about it, a band that started in 62, uh, we had, they had hits in the 60s pre-Beatles, which was Sherry, Big Boys Don't Cry, Ragdoll, Walk Like a Man. Yeah, They maintained a career until 75 and, and well, and beyond, they're still together. But um, they've often said that the Beatles kind of harmed their career. Well, you know what? I that's probably a valid criticism. I think the Beatles harmed a lot of people's careers <laughs> in '64, right? Like, let's face it. Now, we're going to talk about collectors' items in a minute, but I'm going to tell you there's an album. The Beatles, when they first signed in America, they could not get on Capitol Records. They were on a small label called VJ, where the Four Seasons were also signed, and there was an album that's called The Beatles versus the Four Seasons. It's a double album. And one album is the ba- the best hits of the Four Seasons. The other album is the one album that VJ had of the Beatles. Tony, this album sells in the thousands. You cannot find a copy for Love Nor Money. You know? Oh, so, really? Yeah, it's a very rare album. Now, speaking of album sales, you've got the top five UK albums on December seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. Oh, number five is a great one. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, you know, you know why I did this one because of number one. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, hit us with a top five here, Aaron. Well, I know you like this album. Number five is Sting, Fields of Gold. Yep. Uh, number four is Eternal, Always and Forever. Well, that's what Eternal means, I guess. Um, number three, the Jersey Boy himself, Bon Jovi with Crossroad. Number two, The Beautiful South, Carry On, Up the Charts, a greatest hits compilation. And number one, I think everyone everyone was shocked that this made number one worldwide the beatles live at the bbc which was bbc recordings from 62 to 65 the beatles did but when the beatles appeared on the bbc they didn't do their songs they actually did covers of songs they loved so you there was actually two albums worth of songs that yeah. you never heard the beatles do on any of their albums so now before we cut to break uh, bon jovi i i'm going to tell you i was not a huge fan but then I went to see him live and I'm converted, man. What a, sh- what is one of the best live shows I've ever seen. It was fantastic. Saw him here in Ottawa and no, no opening band just rocked hard for God. It was at least two and a half hours. It was a fantastic show. Tony, what made the show so fantastic? Like what was so, uh, what, what won you over? Uh, you know what? It was just, he was uh, not cashing it in whatsoever. It was just, like I said, no opening band. This guy was there to provide a show for the fans. And it wasn't about optics or visuals. It was about, let's just, just rock hard for the next few hours and have a good time. And the way that he engaged the audience. So, you know what? Kudos to him. It was, it was fantastic. And Richie Sambora, my gosh, can that guy sing as well? You know, we were talking in the four seasons uh, Jerry Polchi had a great voice. Like Sambora's voice is easily as good as uh, John Bon Jovi's, you know. 
Yeah, I've never seen them live, but you've, you've kind of sold me. I'm not a, the hugest Bon Jovi fan, but th- that would win me over too. Yeah, I always had that, like like most guys, I, I thought of him as a pretty boy, right? But then Cynthia and I went and I was like, wow, what a what a fantastic show. So there you go. He does have nice hair. <laughs> yeah, he does. So <laughs> we're going to take a little break here and we're going to come back with a bit of an extended from Memphis to Merseyside segment because we've been mentioning for a while that we wanted to do this, uh, talking about memorabilia and how much this stuff sells for, and it's going to be astounding. So we'll be right back. So before we get to our actual from Memphis to Merseyside story, we're going to be talking about memorabilia. Now, Aaron, I know you're a Beatles collector. Uh, I mean, I've seen your, your Beatles room at your house and and I know how much that means to you. Now, have you ever, in all honesty, full disclosure here, have you ever overpaid for something for memorabilia that you just really, really wanted to have, but yet at the same time you knew, wow, that was a lot of money? Or are you pretty prudent with your Beatles buying? I've only bought one thing that cost a tremendous amount of money. And I, I got money as a gift when I retired. So as a retirement gift to myself, I bought an album called The Beatles Christmas Album which was an album that was given out to the fan club in 1970 on Apple Records. Very rare. And I, I'm going to tell you, I paid $400 for it, wow. and which was more than I wanted to pay for anything, you know, any kind of record. But I thought, I'm going to treat myself to this one thing. And now, by the way, Tony, I just saw it for sale again, and it's now doubled. It's over 800 So I did good. I, got, I did good. But um, that's the most expensive thing I've ever paid. Now, I have bought things in the past that are now worth a tremendous amount of money, Yeah, but I certainly didn't pay that price for it, you know? Well, I have a brother, my middle brother, uh, who lives in North Bay, uh, collected comic books for years and years and years. In fact, I think he still does. But some of these things, man, they're worth, you know, in the thousands, in the tens of thousands. I bet you he's got a few that might be worth six figures. It's crazy and they don't seem to go down. And I, and, I, and the memorabilia market for Beatles stuff doesn't seem to go down, does it? Well, no, and it, it, it just keeps going up. Like, for example, in, in 2011, there was a poster. So, you know, in the old days, they used to put posters in record stores advertising albums. So in 1965, Capitol Records released an album called Beatles 6, and the promotional poster sold for $6,300 mm. In 2011, that same poster would go for well over 10,000 now. And and when I was a kid, when I was like really little, like eight or nine, well, maybe 10, there's a store in Oshawa called Wilson and Lee, and they gave me a poster and I still have it. And it's a, it's a big poster that says the white album is now in stock. Oh, wow. So I've, I've kept that rolled up hidden away. (laughs) You know, for me, I always spent my money because I'm a musician, right? It was always buying gear. And now my latest hobby is always buying microphones. And sadly, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good hobby. Every, that's every great. couple that's awesome. of months, I'm I'm texting Aaron, "Hey, I got a new microphone. Let's try it out." You know, but, sounds great though. Yeah, this one is a keeper for sure. I love it. But unfortunately, these won't go up in value like Beatles memorabilia will. But let, let's take a look here. Let's just run down a few of these. But Tony, the guitar you bought in 2004, speaking of gear, I know that in 2004, you bought the guitar played by George and John uh, for, you paid, you what, paid 570000 for that, did you not? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that is unbelievable. <laughs> well, well, let's take a look at, at some of these items here that have just gone for wild amounts of money 
Let's start with December 12th, 1998, the 7-inch single by The Quarrymen featuring John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison, named as the rarest record of all time. Only 50 copies were made, and each copy was valued at 10,000 pounds. In 1998 money, I guess that was around 20,500 US dollars. Isn't that something? Well, see, that's because McCartney has the only exist the original 10-inch record that the quarrymen made of, of two um uh, in spite of all the danger and and that'll be the day so he made 50 copies from the one original and indeed he made 50 copies and then they became he didn't mail one to me he said it's got lost in the mail i don't know <laughs> oh come on paul get that if paul is listening right now let's get snappy on that and just send it to aaron <laughs> please please <laughs> and then Tony, in 2007, a copy of Lennon's book, A Spaniard in the Works, which contained a lock of his hair, sold for, well, basically $48,000. Yeah. And wow. it was, it was wow. expected to go for probably somewhere between, I'm looking, I'm trying to do the conversion in my head because it's a roughly double at that time. Uh, you know, they figured it'd go for somewhere between five and $10,000 and goes for $48,000. <laughs> <laughs> Which was and and the book was given to Betty Glasgow, the Fab Four hairdresser during their heyday. So I mean, just incredible. You hang on to those things, well, like your brother's comic books. I'm sure I know. I've read about comic books being worth mega bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. You know that might just be his retirement plan. You never know. But uh, 2011, mm. an ultra rare Beetle Six in store promotional poster was sold on eBay for $6,300 and there were 17 bids placed on this thing. And it, the poster says Beatles six is here is printed in block letters across the top with a black and white photo of the fab four. So, you know, $6,300. Do we have any more? Oh, the guitar. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. The, the one you bought, the guitar you bought. That's um, right. 570 <laughs> grand. You know, I just had it lying around. I, who, who needs a house, man? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just wonder who bought it, but um, you know, it would be nice to have. It was used from 66 to 69 by both Harrison and Lennon. And during the recording of the um, the Re uh, Revolver album and used during the recording of the White album. Yeah. But other things, there's not just Beatles, like Kurt Cobain's guitar sold for almost $20,000 and a school book report by uh, Britney Spears sold for a thousand pounds, which was about... 990 pounds more than I'd pay, but there yeah, you go. But did you know, remember we talked about that on this podcast and her yes. affinity for, uh, what was it? Some kind of physics or something. Do you remember that physics, story? It was physics, yeah. It was yeah, physics. that was one of the odder stories we've ever done on this show. We should revisit that when it comes around again this year. Oh, absolutely. But Tony, in, in terms of the, from Memphis to Merseyside, you have a story here about Elvis giving a performance in 56, which was kind of historic. Yeah, this was a, a very historic one. So December 15th, 56, Elvis Presley gives his final performance on the Louisiana Hayride. And his contract had actually been bought out way back in April. Tom Parker, Colonel Tom Parker, said, you know, Elvis is getting too big to be coming to the hayride all the time like this. Bought out his contract for $10,000 again. We're talking 1956 money. But one of the caveats of that uh, buyout was that Elvis was going to come back and appear at this charity show on December 15th, 1956. And by December 56, Elvis is huge, huge. You know, he started at the hayride about a year and a half, you know, maybe 
almost two years before that as almost a nobody and is one of the biggest stars in the world a short time later. He had appeared at the Grand Ole Opry on October the 2nd, 1954, and it didn't go well at all. And that was a famous quote, you know, the, the guy at the Opry said to Elvis, maybe you should go back to driving truck. And Sam Phillips, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Sam Phillips didn't want Elvis, didn't want his career to stall. So he booked him in at the Hayride, hoping for a better result. And of course, that we all know about that hayride performance. I mean, I got the girls going, and they do such a brilliant job of depicting that in the uh, the film, don't they? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But what's interesting about this last performance at the hayride is where the famous Elvis has left the building first appeared. Yeah. Th- so that was uh, now. What was his name? Horace Logan. He was the announcer, and he and he said yeah. that because they had they had to have. I was reading newspaper accounts of the. Hayride performance, you know, and there was a whole contingent of police officers that had to be there to escort Elvis on and escort him off. And that was like hysteria by the fans. It was a huge deal. And so, you know, he'd finish the show and much like the Beatles, right? You know, you'd finish the show, drop your stuff, get escorted off by the police and hightail it out of there before you risk bodily harm. And that's when they used the phrase Elvis has left the building and it just stuck with us. And culturally now it's, it's a thing, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Elvis has left the building as part of our lexicon now, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times you hear that for different things, right? Or, you know, someone joking when someone retires. I, they actually said that on my last day at the school. Uh, nice. Over nice. the announcements nice. when I was retiring. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, Aaron, we're at the end of the show here. And what Tony, a, what Tony a can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, I go to, ahead. I have to interrupt. Yeah. I have to interrupt. Yeah. Um, Tony, just everyone, just so you know, Tony and I are selling some of our rough notes for memorabilia. Uh, they'll be up. <laughs> they'll be signed, <laughs> authenticated, and be on an eBay starting bid, 10000 US. So... <laughs> That's right. So get them while they're hot, folks. <laughs> well, that was worth interrupting for. So Thank um, you, Tony. So we are at the end of the show, and what a treat this has been, hasn't it? This has been, uh, again, I keep we keep saying this, oh, maybe this was our most fun road trip yet, but I, I really do feel like that. I'm totally with you. I mean, I know it's kind of like every time we have a great time, so what can I say? One of our best ones yet. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, the music today was provided, as always, by my good friend Rick Denis. And folks, we'd like to thank you. This has been an M2M production recorded here at The Bunker in Perth, Ontario. And, you know, we can't do this without you, our listeners. And we always appreciate the feedback that we're getting when you send us messages, when you share the show or share a post or just tell somebody about our show. That really, really helps. If you're an Apple or a Spotify listener... If you can figure out how to leave a review, we'd always love to have that as well. Stick around if you're a radio listener, because we've got the podcast post show. And if you are just a regular podcast app listener, check out Aaron's Spotify playlist. But Aaron, since we're at the end of the episode here, if the man is getting you down, what should you do? Just keep on rocking, because that's basically it. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening, folks.